We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today we have a special guest, Anthony Schaefer. Anthony Schaefer, a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and counterintelligence officer in which he has conducted counterterrorism operations as part of Reforger in 1985 and worked in New York City as part of the Army's anti-terrorism efforts during OPSAIL in 1986. Schaefer also worked at the Air Force Special Activity Center, where he worked as a case officer. In 1995, he transitioned to the Defense Intelligence Agency as part of the consolidation of all service, human intelligence, into the Department of Defense, where he constructed his own task force, Stratus Ivy, a special mission task force that harnessed the skills of officers from the NSA, Army Intelligence, Defense Intelligence Agency. He became part of a covert DIA operations program, Able Danger, where Schaefer, along with a select few from the Land Information Warfare Activity Team, would entail a 9-11 pre-operation offense suite designed to detect, degrade, and counter Al-Qaeda capabilities, to which he was completely blackballed by the Department of Defense and unjustly restricted of his security clearance, which later became under investigation by a Senate Judiciary Committee. Schaefer today is the London Center for Policy Research, a New York Times bestselling author of the book, Operation Dark Spycraft and Special Ops on the Frontlines of Afghanistan, which details experiences in full, and his latest book, The Last Line, a novel is a stark warning of how terrorism or terrorists will use the Southwest border of the United States to gain access and conduct terrorist activities within Homeland. In 2017, he became Homeland Security Advisor for the Stafford County Sheriff's Department of Virginia and works as its member of the new NYPD Counterterrorism Bureau's Expanded Task Force. How are you, Mr. Schaefer? Thank you for coming on. So Adam, yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, your opening. And uh, as I've said, and I don't mind sharing this with your group, I, I said off air and I'll say it now publicly, I really appreciate your interest in simply researching and putting out uh, factual information, no matter how it makes people feel one way or another. I appreciate the fact that you're just trying to get from what I see uh, uh, factual information out. So thanks, thank you for doing that. And thank you for having me today to, to have this discussion. Oh, absolutely. And thank you. Um, well, let's start simple. Sure. Let's start, let's start with the basics of those who are not aware of your background. Um, when did you first enlist in the military and where did it lead you last? So, yeah, it's, that's a good question. I, I've talked a little bit about this, but I, I'm happy to go into more detail. I am, um, I was actually an Air Force brat. My, uh, my stepdad, uh, John Robert Schaefer, 
was an Air Force logistics officer. Um, uh, I ended up uh, spending time in the Philippines and during the Vietnam War. Uh, a lot of my early years were there. I uh, have fond memories of trading with Philippine, Filipino kids through the wire around Clark Air Force Base for things like old Japanese World War II helmets. And uh, uh, you're, you're gonna laugh at this, but probably not hand grenades, un, unblown, unexploded hand grenades, which uh, had the, most of the gunpowder carved out. But mm -hmm. things like that got my parents really upset because you know they had EOD and the explosive ordnance folks come take it away from me. It's like, gee, I, I thought it was pretty cool, but they didn't. So anyway, and then uh, spent some time in San Antonio with my dad when he was stationed there. And then um, uh, we went to on to the, uh, the uh, to Lisbon, Portugal in the mid 1970s uh, from 76 through uh, 1980. I actually went to high school at the American, American International School of Lisbon. And during that time, Adam is when I really developed my interest in uh, intelligence because you know this is during the Cold War. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people understand that uh, Lisbon has always been kind of this place of, of spying. Um, Ian Fleming actually wrote his first James Bond novel, uh, Casino Royale, based on his time in a place called Estoril, Portugal, where he was a, a, an operative. So I actually grew up in Estoril and Cascais and, and Carcavelos and all these other places in the Lisbon uh, you know, suburbs. So it was during this time that I started kind of watching uh, our, our military attache. Uh, I, you know, we all knew who the chief of station was. His son uh, was in my class, uh, Frank Carlucci Jr. You might know his dad, uh, mm. former ambassador and secretary of defense Carlucci. Frank was in my class. So, so we, it was a very interesting time. And uh, so I just kind of like, gee, spying, that's kind of, kind of interesting. And so from that point on, from high school on, uh, I always thought that uh, one of the best things that any individual could do is try to seek the meaning of, of what is true, try to find out what the truth is. Mm. And I felt that um, being an intelligence officer, trying to figure out that, you know, what's really going on would be a way of doing it. So um, after uh, high school, or after, I should say, after leaving Lisbon, I had to go back, we went back to Dayton, Ohio, where my dad was stationed at Wright-Patterson. And uh, I had to attend one last year of high school, at Stebbins High School in, in Dayton, near, uh, right next to the Wright Plain, where, uh, next to the plains uh, of where Wright, the Wright brothers had their, some of their first experimental flights, right next to the, uh, the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and the, uh, the Air Force uh, Museum, Air, Air Museum. Uh, and so uh, right after high school, or right during high school, I should say, I actually joined uh, the Ohio Army National Guard before I graduated from high school. I actually joined uh, right when I turned, literally when I turned 18. Um, uh, and so I, you know, I, I took the oath and uh, started down the path of, uh, of military service with an eye. Obviously, you don't always know how it's going to turn out, but when I joined the Guard, uh, the guard was offering four years of, uh, of college tuition for eight years of enlistment. And uh, obviously, um, I had an interest in not just enlisting. I, I wanted the college degree. But more importantly, I wanted to become an officer and I wanted to seek out uh, becoming a member of military intelligence. And that's how it all started. In, um, 
in the book Operation Dark Heart in chapter yeah. two, uh, which is entitled The Dark Side, you briefly describe about being involved with the return of forces in Germany or the acronym Reforger, right. uh, where you conducted counterterrorism there. Could you describe right. more about how you became involved with that unit? Yeah, so as boy, I, I always try to get as much fact out as I can without getting more in trouble about things that I, I, I'm, I'm obligated to not talk about in full detail. And I'm always walking on that edge. So, right. If you will, there's some things you can't talk about. Right. I'd rather, I'd so, rather not. so, yeah. So, the way I'll describe it is that um, the United States Army, in particular, has always been a lot more aggressive and um, willing to do things on the margins using uh, resources which are otherwise observable for purposes of trying to achieve specific uh, clandestine uh, objectives. I think that's the best way of describing it. So early on, I was in something I found out later was actually a classified program called Key Personnel Upgrade Program, Keep Up. It's actually, it was actually on my orders going to Germany. And the, the, the supposed reason for the program, the public reason is, hey, they would pick people who see, were showing potential uh, in, the, in the Army Reserve and Guard and putting them in real world situations to see how they perform. So it was just a, basically a spotting assessing tool. And so, you know, I was, uh, uh, you know, actually going through, I was commissioned uh, in, in 1983. I was uh, still, I, had, I was 20. I wasn't even 21 yet when I got commissioned. Uh, so I, I was, uh, I was very uh, young in, uh, in, in working all of this. Matter of fact, geez, in 83, yeah, I was, uh, I was, it was before my, uh, my, my, uh, I turned uh, uh, whatever it is, 83, and then all this other stuff. Uh, we were working uh, aggressively to go after terrorists. So I actually deployed to Germany. And I was integrated in the 165th uh, uh, Battalion, uh, Tactical Exploitation, TE, out of Wiesbaden. And during that time, we did a lot of very cool things. I mean, we were actually running an exercise. I ended up working with the French 13th Regiment, the Dragonis Parachutis, which is like the Special Operations Unit. Great experience. And uh, I just, we were way further ahead uh, Army was way further ahead than acknowledged. And uh, by the way, Adam, I, I kind of um, attribute uh, the Army's attitude of being aggressive and quiet. I mean, nobody, they weren't trying to create trouble. They were trying to create capacity to the environment uh, that the Reagan White House created. I, I have a number of uh, friends who were pres on President Reagan's cabinet, Bud McFarland and others, and they were at the top trying to create uh, room for innovation and creative thinking by the services to do things like getting more people involved in these efforts, trying to be creative and finding people who can do it. So I appreciate having had the opportunity in 83, 84, 85 to kind of be given the chance to go out and do things because, you know, they, they would, back during the Cold War, uh, people were judged much more on your ability to accomplish a mission rather than uh, you, you know, any, any bad habits or bad attitudes you have, it was more about, hey, can you get this done, go do it. And so that's, that's how I ended up uh, in 85, going over to Reforger as part of this, this uh, key personal upgrade program and, and being able to participate in counterterrorism operations, mm. uh, incidental and, and, and um, 
simultaneous to the uh, the extra the reforger exercise of '85. You've had a, a keen interest at a very young age uh, regarding your interest in counterintelligence, right? Um, and in 1987, you actually uh, trained at the farm, which is the right. CIA intelligence agency training base, um, and finished top of your class. Now, this so, led you yeah. this led you deeper to the field of technical collection, which is surveillance technology, uh, which is considered the most protected of the programs in the U.S. government. Right. Would, you, you would become part of the U.S. government's most com covert operations later on. But this was, however, something you always ascribed to, even when you were young, as outlined in your book. Yeah. That's a, yeah, um, I know it's more of a comment, but I, I think as a questionnaire, I'll try to answer it. For, so, yeah, the, um, the, I, was, uh, I attended a number of, of training courses. I went through the Army Counterintelligence Special Agent course. I attended something called the Strategic, Strategic Debriefing School. Uh, out of Fort Huachuca, both at Fort Huachuca. And then during this time, you know, the army made an offer to kind of bring me aboard as a counterterrorism guy, as a counterintelligence guy. But the Air Force came along, Air Force Special Activity Center made me a better offer. So I ended up going to the farm to, to, to CIA training. At that point in time, it was called Military uh, Operations Training Course, MOTC. Uh, there was uh, two separate courses at the time. That's a whole other story why they were separate mm -hmm. and then, then merged. But yeah, I ended up... Uh, uh, you know, I didn't even know I was at the top of my class. I really don't tell you exactly how, how you're doing until the very end. Right. And um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I enjoyed it. And I was youngest in my class too. Uh, and I think part of, part of being young and being in that environment is you just really don't care. You just gotta, you just gotta do what you, you gotta do. And you really, you're not really watching and worrying about how well you're going to do, you just do it. And I think that sometimes gives you freedom that others do not because they're, you know, a lot of the folks were, you know, older officers who'd been around a long time and they were very worried about how well they were doing and would this look good or bad. I just didn't care. And so, like, yeah, I just go out and do, do things, which often got me in a lot of trouble. Um, there was one, one exercise where we had to go out and uh, it was called an IIR, an Intelligence Information Report um, uh, exercise, where basically your job was just to go out and take photos uh, and write up uh, the description of a target. That's it. I mean, and so I was given a local radio station, and uh, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, strike that. I was given a a, um, a a pier, a pier to go and look at, a, a spot on the water, and then my friend, the class leader, uh, John Tempone, John was given a radio station, and so we decided to cooperate because I was already doing media stuff, so I knew about radio stations, and he was a marine, so he knew about port, you know, piers. So we kind of worked together. We kind of hmm. cooperated. So next thing you know, you know, I've, I'm going into the radio station pretending to be a member of a nonprofit. Well, I didn't even know. I didn't know you couldn't do that. <laughs> next thing you know, I'm getting yelled at. Like, I can't believe you went in there and told these people you were ex. Like, well, what? I had the card. It's like, no, my God, you can't do that. It's like, what? I got in. I got the information and I got out. So it was it was very funny that even in spy school, <laughs> it was I was getting in trouble for like, well, you told me to go do it. Oh, we didn't tell you. We didn't mean do it that way. It's like, oh. So it was a very early lesson that, yeah, they're gonna tell you go do something. But if if it if it does, if you if they if they want to get you, they're gonna get you. <laughs> because yes. you, there, there's all these things. So it was I still came out of the top of the class because I was just, you know. 
uh, willing to do things, but it was, it was a good object lesson, which I guess I didn't get because I kept doing things like that through my entire career. Mm -hmm. Just if I'm given a mission, I want to go out and do it, try to figure it out and make it work. And I was far more worried about mission accomplishment than I was the politics behind trying to make my, uh, my leaders happen. So, I mean, there, it's a weird, really weird way of saying it, but I answered to people who wanted me to accomplish the mission, not the politicians who were afraid that uh, we might get in trouble while trying to accomplish the mission. That's, that's I think it's a better way of saying saying what I what I had to do during that time. Sure. Just to, just to add also too, um, if there are certain things that uh, Mr. Schaefer cannot explain, it's due to the fact that in the book Operation Dark Art, uh, there are many high level black operations that he's involved in. So the book itself uh, is heavily redacted. Um, so if there's certain questions I ask here and he can't answer it in full, it's because he's not allowed to even at the current time. Um, so my next question would be, um, you have become involved in creating your own task force. Right. Which was Stratus Ivory, which conducted direct support to the Department of Defense and their compartmental activities. Right. Um, focusing on offensive information operations. Now, can you elaborate further on this without stepping on your own toes? Yeah, no, I, I'd be happy to. As a matter of fact, uh, I've, uh, since that book was written within the last year, I've made additional protected disclosures to members of Congress regarding some things which um, even after all this time, I mean, we're talking about a long time ago when I was doing this and, and things which were going on, I, I've, uh, I've made some additional protected disclosures recommending Congress open certain investigations based on certain things that are going on within media today. And I, I, uh, I, I will simply state, Adam, that if you if one looks at the way information is being suppressed, manipulated or otherwise hmm. uh, funneled, it looks a lot like things I knew about 20 years ago. Just saying. Yeah. So that's I, I, while I can't get in specifics because of security obligations, hmm. some of the things we may have been working on would have had a lot of the same effects I'm seeing happen these days, if, if that makes sense to you and your audience. Yes. So I, I've recorded some things which I, I have grave concerns about. But let's go back to the task force. So the very thing uh, I just alluded to, uh, Stratus Ivy was a, a hybrid task force that was created. Uh, I just basically was given all these missions, uh, asked to go do them. Uh, and then uh, basically we were organizing, uh, I was, we were organizing my task force around the missions. Uh, we had three areas we were focused on. First was, as you alluded to, highly compartmented uh, uh, Office of Secretary of Defense uh, Black programs uh, that were examining, uh, looking at how to uh, weaponize technology, I think is the best way to summarize that. Uh, this relates to the protected disclosure I just mentioned. I'll, I can't go much more into detail than, than I have, other than to say, you know, uh, a lot of folks understood the potential of the internet back in the late 90s and were working hard to weaponize all of it back then. And uh, this is long before a lot of folks I knew back in those days, Adam, half the colonels I knew didn't didn't know how to use a computer. I mean, it just uh. it was a different age. And, and so the things we take for granted today, data mining, the instant communicate, all those things were still just concepts. So I can I can say with uh, a great deal of authority that indeed. Um, uh, the issue of of how to weaponize how to weaponize these things 
uh, was being thought. So that's that's one area. Second area was essentially support to special mission units, SOCOM, Special Operations Command. Mm. So able danger was a is a concept that that was created uh, by General Hugh Shelton. Basically, General Shelton, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs in '99, worked with uh, General Pete Schoomaker, the Commander of Special Operations Command, to create essentially uh, a new concept. Uh, people tend to forget that. This the able danger was the first time Special Operations Command was the lead operational sink. That is to say, they were the ones being told go do this. Normally, Special Operations Command up at that time would support regional regional uh, command sinks, regional commands, UCOM, CENTCOM, PACOM. They would support other commands rather than be the lead. So this was the first time a the SOCOM was the global lead. They were the ones told to go do it. This, this, was, this is significant. And uh, to your, as you mentioned in the opening, it was very specifically to, to identify and then on call, uh, basically disrupt, deny, degrade Al-Qaeda. Uh, that was it. Uh, the, the guidance was very clear. Uh, the the how-to was not clear because this was the first time the, the U.S. government, Special Operations Command in particular, had been told, go figure out how to fight a global war. Uh, without, you know, without regard to borders, with going after a non-linear, non-geographic target. So th this was very controversial at the time, and a lot of folks in the Pentagon did not support it. Now we could talk, <laughs> we could have Adam, we yeah. could talk a whole day about the internal problems I faced at the Pentagon, just trying to support this. Uh, one one thing about bureaucracy, uh, bureaucracies do not like change. They do not like to be challenged. And since we were coming in as a new entity, Stratosite was new, both by the fact that we were looking at new technologies and we weren't part of the, the, the counterterrorism mafia. We weren't one of those organizations which had been working this for decades and failing. So the moment we step up and say, hey, we're going to take a shot at this, <laughs> we were instantly hated. So there was a lot of friction just by the fact that we were being asked as an out, outside entity to come into these other people's rice bowls and start doing things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that was another point of controversy why the Pentagon didn't want to talk about all of this in the mid 2000s because it was very embarrassing to see all the, th all the effort made by Pentagon seniors to stop what we were doing uh, because it was, uh, it was different. Uh, but that's how Stratus Ivy started uh, as a task force. We were doing things others would not. And then Stratus Ivy was linked into Able Danger Special Operations Command mm. when I was actually down on a reserve tour. I was actually down, I think, in uh, late 99. Uh, as, and this is something that's fairly well disclosed now. You know, we in the military intelligence community, the case officers, most of us have uh, maintained some level of res reserve affiliation so we can use that, uh, you know, to go out as a military officer when we need to. So as a reservist, I would go down and I would work at uh, JSOC at Fort, Bra Fort Bragg or SOCOM in, in Tampa and do my reserve tour. So during my reserve tour in, uh, uh, in the summer of 1999, I was actually attached to the human support element, HSE, hmm. at SOCOM. And uh, I was asked by Al Downs, the DIA rep, the Defense Intelligence Agency rep to Special Operations Command, to brief uh, General Schoomaker, uh, the sink on my Stratus IV mission functions at a, at a top secret code word only 
briefing and I got authorization to brief him. So I know your audience is going to have a hard time believing this because, you know, it's not it's not usual. But, yeah, a uh, a major U.S. Army Reserve major ended up spending about an hour with uh, General General Pete Schoomaker briefing him on uh, what I was doing on these these advanced activities my unit was conducting. And during that meeting, uh, General Schoomaker looked over at uh, his deputy and said, uh, get Schaefer read into able danger immediately. And that's how it all started. Uh, basically, I was told by the commander, by the four-star general, uh, hey, you need to be part of this project. And since he was tasked by General Shelton to do the project, that's how I as an individual and my unit in the Stratus Ivy ended up supporting this counterterrorism effort known as able danger. Well, um, I was going to even say that uh, I think due to your uh, previous background with counterintelligence itself also helped make them make that decision involving you with the program itself. <coughs> um, excuse me. Sure. Who else? Who else was <coughs> Who else was involved with Able Danger? Um, uh, I don't know if you want to get into that, but no, I do. Yeah, sure. So uh, it's a great question, Adam, and I think people still don't understand. And 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 when they did the investigation of this, by the way, I still owe you a document. I'll send this to you mm. uh, regarding uh, the uh, the lead investigator of Able Danger, a guy named Crane, John Crane, uh, who became a whistleblower himself and has made statements saying that uh, they had verified uh, what I'm about to tell you, but they just they chose to to basically ignore it or make it look like I was off the reservation. So let's let's talk about the, the 99 and 2000. So that's it. That's the issue is like, how, how do you put together a unit and a task force to do something that's never been done before? No one had ever looked at globally a, 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 a terrorist threat. Uh, yeah, we dealt with terrorism. We dealt with uh, the, the Red Army faction. We dealt with uh, with uh, the folks in the Philippines. There was counter. There was groups there. There's always been terror, but we've never looked at. We had never looked at that at, at, at terrorism from a global perspective until then. Al Qaeda had become a global threat. They had already attacked the embassies in in, in Africa during this period. We didn't know at, at the time, but we found out later they were planning the coal attack. In Yemen. So we were given this challenge of how do you map? How do you go about trying to identify and map as, as part of a campaign, a, a cohesive campaign? And, and again, military, uh, Adam, we've done campaigns for decades. We did campaigns in Europe during World War II. We did, you know, we know how to do campaigns, but we know how to do it against a regional threat using conventional uh, methods. So how do you go after a terrorist organization that's created a shadow organization globally? I mean, this is like a James Bond movie. It's like mm -hmm. Spectre. So uh, we were saddled with that. And so when, when, the, when the SOCOM team came to me, and I worked with some very bright officers, I'll just state one of their names, Captain, then, then Commander Scott Philpott. Scott was mm -hmm. a, a tech guy. He, he was a Navy a fleet guy. He was a, 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 a brown Navy guy. He did a lot of... Uh, littoral stuff but he's very bright very smart very smart on technology so he became kind of my primary partner and you know trying to figure out how do we do this because we had the colonels and and captains 
who really had never dealt with technology before. I remember one time I did an update. I was asked to come down to SOCOM and do an update on the project to uh, the general schoolmaker staff. And so um, I came in and I, I, Adam, I know this is a bit long-winded, but I think it's important to understand yeah. the context of the time. Uh, this was, I think, the spring of 2002 now. No, I'm sorry, 2000. And uh, I came in and um, I had four briefing slides, a very short briefing. I mean, for those in the military, you know, four, four slides is nothing. People will do decks of 20, 30 slides, PowerPoint, death by PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. I just didn't believe in that. So it was all black and white, no graphics, four slides. And I estimated it would take me, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes to do the update to General Schoolmaker, he's a bright guy. So next thing I know, I'm told, no, 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 you're gonna, you have an hour on the calendar and you're gonna have all these people in the room with you. It's like, I can't fill an hour. It's like, don't worry about it, yeah, just do it. So I go into this briefing with General Schoolmaker with about 12 other senior officers, colonels and generals. And as I'm briefing, Every time I go to, you know, these are very short slides. I would go to a billet and start briefing it. General Schoolmaker would take over and say, hey, this is what he's doing and this is why he's doing it. So what happened was General Schoolmaker took the opportunity to use my briefing and my activities to educate his staff on what we were doing. It turned into an hour and a half. <laughs> and so I'd never seen anything like it where he would take what I was doing and use it as a teaching point. And so at the end of this briefing, I went up to one of the colonels who was on my side and I worked with, and Scott. And so I said, um, how many people do you think really understood what General Schoolmaker just did? And out of, out, of the, out of the 15 people in the room, Scott said, probably three, probably three or four maybe got it. And that was the point. Nobody understood how to use technology and adapt it to this new environment. It was, it was the Wild West. Nobody understood. So that was what we were faced with is how do you organize and conduct these operations in a way using technology and frankly authorities no one had ever had before. And that's why even to this day, Adam, there are two components, two elements, sub elements, sub projects of able danger. I still can't legally talk about because mm -hmm. it had to do with these new authorities, which at the time were very controversial. Which, you know, by the way, I, uh, I was trying to get to President Trump and I was hoping he would declassify these things hmm. so we can talk about them. I think they, these are things that the American people need to understand exist and were created uh, because I think as much as uh, we created them for the right purposes, uh, in, in the wrong hands, they can be abused badly. So this is one of my ongoing and remaining concerns about uh, us working back in those days to create certain things which you know, left, uh, you know, to their own devices without proper oversight could be badly abused. And we've seen uh, NSA abuse their uh, authority regarding data mining. Uh, we've seen them abuse their authority regarding targeted collection. So mm -hmm. uh, I am one of those who believes that uh, while we, we created these things with the best intentions, uh, people don't always have their oath of office in mind when they when they do certain things. So, but anyway, that's that's the backdrop of what what was going on during our creation of uh, of uh, of able danger as as an operation. Even almost right from the outset of the program itself, it was met with resistance and oh, yes. a non-committal of even other agencies. And my next question oh, yes. is the following: Is that um, at about the same time in 96, 97, the CIA 
was running their own virtual station, which is called the Bin Laden Issue Station. Right. And you met with CIA representatives from Alex Station at SOCOM headquarters uh, right. in Fort Bragg. And the CIA, the CIA reps were quite adamant that they would not even share information with you or with the U.S. Army Special Operations Command due to the fact that the CIA wanted to be the primary agency involved with data collection. Um, it seemed the CIA considered the Able Danger program a threat to your unit. Was that the case, or is this basically yes. about interagency infighting? Yeah. So, Adam, just right now, let me say this for the record. We may have to go do a second session because I'm going to take a lot of time to explain this. No, it's fine. Yeah, Please. I mean, we want to maybe want to do a part two, two of this because, uh, yeah, so I'm more, I think it's important to understand the context of what was going on. Yeah. So, so right after, within, uh, I think, um, three days, within three days of me be, being read into uh, Able Danger mm. as a formal operation. I, I, Dave Ralph, Dave Rolfe, Dave Rolfe was the CIA uh, uh, officer assigned to Special Operations Command. I knew Dave very well. Dave was a former Army counterintelligence, uh, Army Army uh, Colonel. So Dave uh, was one of those guys who came to the Army program, converted over to CIA. Great, I, uh, Dave's great. I, I I have no bad words to say about Dave. But Dave Rolfe was there. I first met and worked with Dave while he was at uh, he was a CIA. Uh, rep to defense human service. So Dave, I knew Dave fairly well. We had a cordial working relationship. So um, Scott Philpot comes to me and says, hey, um, I, it's great that you understand this, but we have a problem with CIA. CIA is refusing to cooperate. Mm -hmm. So would you go in and sit down and talk to Dave and explain to him what we're doing and how it's different than, than what Alex Station is doing? So, yeah, look, I was more than happy to sit down and try to reason with CIA. I mean, since I was CIA trained, I understood their system. I've been integrated uh, a number of times uh, in operations. Uh, I've run joint operations with CIA, so I understood their system very well. And we could, you know, I could get into that another day, but, you know, there was a, there were still ongoing operations that um, I created uh, at INSCOM. That are still ongoing that they're now joined they're still being run by cia so mm. i understand their system i went in to sit down with dave and so i spent i spent probably about an hour just briefing dave on what able danger was basically to summarize it for your audience alex station was going after bin laden they had a specific what they call a finding it's considered a covert operation because the ultimate outcome Covert versus clandestine. Covert, by definition, means that uh, you're you're going to see an uh, observable. Something's going to happen that cannot be otherwise explained away. So in this case, the the finding was to assassinate Bin Laden. That's it. <clears throat> and I think this has been well documented by a number of folks who were assigned at Alex Station. Uh, so that's what they were doing. They, that's what their effort was to find and kill Bin Laden. We didn't care. It's like, yeah, you guys go off and do your assassination stuff. That's not our job. Able Danger was to map and, as I mentioned earlier, Adam, to on call, take action, be so aware of their system that the moment they try to do something, we could cut their muscle and stop it. That's mm -hmm. how that's how intimate. That's how much detail we wanted to know about their system. It's like, yeah, we go, go, go chase Bin Laden. 
that system is not going to go away. We we thought that that, that Al Qaeda as an entity, no matter who was in charge, would be a long term threat. That's why we wanted to study. So we they wanted the head, we wanted the body. So Adam, I sat there, and I went through with Dave uh, for an hour. And Dave, at the end of it, looked at me and says, "Tony, no, I I can see now that there's a complete difference of mission and focus. That there's no competition." And he looked at me and says, "But." But but CIA will never cooperate. And so, so I sat there mm. and I said, Dave, I just explained to you that we're not competing with you. He says, yeah, but you don't understand. It doesn't matter. Uh, CIA will see this as a threat because if you're successful and they're not, you will get credit and they won't. Therefore, they will see it. Even if there's no operational overlap, they will see it as a threat because if you're successful, uh, you will steal credit from them. And that's that's like a, that, that was a big lesson for me and a big reality, which uh, I think resulted in the huge infighting, which the American public is now, I think, mostly aware of during yes. that period. But that that was it. Uh, and no matter. And Dave even uh, made the effort to go to George Tennant to try to set up a meeting between Schoolmaker uh, and, and himself on this issue. As a matter of fact, uh, at the time, I was briefing George Tennant. Uh, um, people don't understand that DOD has its own authorities, basically, to do things. So we we would go over as a courtesy and, and update Tenet on some of the other activities I was doing about once every six months during this period. And um, to deconflict, I mean, uh, we generally didn't want to see something happen. As a matter of fact, some of the operations we were running, Adam, we were actually uh, doing jointly with CIA, just through CIA CIA is so complex. Some of the some of CIA doesn't even understand what CIA does. Just saying, there's just, there's some pieces. There's some. They have uh, layers of security on top of layers of security. So it's kind of ironic. I would one time I was briefing Tenet on something we were doing, and he had no idea that that CIA was doing something. So it was a bit funny. Anyway, so so anyway, so I would see Tenet on a periodic basis, but it wasn't my job to uh, basically get Tenet and uh, General. General Schoomaker together. So that was something we were working. But to my knowledge, that meeting never happened because uh, CIA wouldn't take the meeting. They didn't want to deconflict because, again, mm. I think they really felt that they would, uh, if we were successful in our mission and they were not, that that would, uh, that would create uh, uh, them not looking as good as they, they would hope to look otherwise. And this would have later ramifications uh, Absolutely. regarding with 9-11 itself. Um, right. Because the CIA also at Alex Station um, had not, uh, they, they felt that the FBI's I-49 unit, which was the New York City counterintelligence unit, was also a threat to them as well, even though they, the FBI clearly didn't have the capabilities or the funding that the CIA had, and they kept them out of the loop. No, I. Uh, we could talk another day uh, about that as well, because... And maybe you have a question already on this. The reason I was uh, trying to work uh, to pass information regarding uh, what we discovered to the FBI is because I was integrated with um, FBI's uh, Washington field office on another operation regarding 17 November in Athens, Greece. So that's a whole other story where FBI and CIA were in conflict. As a matter of fact, at one point during that investigation, CIA uh, officers in Athens were being considered for uh, investigation because there was a belief that uh, they were cooperating. They had helped create and were cooperating with 17 November. 
and FBI was considering uh, indicting them over what they believed to be FCI's cooperation with uh, international terrorism. So, yeah. Oh. Um, fa fast forward to December of 99. Yeah. Um, yourself and the Able Danger team announced that Al-Qaeda did indeed have a presence inside the United States. Right. And that its infrastructure is much broader than originally ascertained. Right. Um, the LIWA, the Land Information Warfare Activities Unit, even constructed a very intricately detailed chart, which showed a high number of Al-Qaeda operatives around the world and all connected, which showed two cells active inside the United States, one involving Omar Abdel Rahman and the other Muhammad Atta. Right. Your, your, your data uh, through open source information amassed to an amazing three terabytes. However, according to Scott Philpott, any data involving Atta and his unit were considered off limits due to their status of being US citizens. Um, which agency labeled Atta and his unit citizens? And did this inhibit Able Danger from investigating them further? Yeah, uh, great question. And let me be as concise as possible because this is another area I could talk for probably half an hour. Mm. So, so, yeah, the, the data was Army's. Army had consolidated um, this data through a number of, of overt sources. Now, one of the things, just to, let me throw this in there for maybe our next discussion. One of the reasons that this was so sensitive is that one of the areas of the open source data, and I'm using open source with air quotes, mm -hmm. is that, that uh, one of the subcontractors had hired uh, a researcher to do research on individuals traveling in and out of mosques. Yes. Now, yeah, so, so yeah, that's technically, it's overt. But uh, one of the controversial points was, well, is that collection or research? You know, would you otherwise hmm. have to announce the fact that you're U.S. intelligence and you're collecting on essentially protected First Amendment activities? Now, uh, you and I may agree to disagree on this. I don't know what your political your belief is, but I believe that if you are, if, if any religion is, is contemplating allowing its members to conduct attacks against others, uh, either of their faith or not of their faith, and con considering doing doing terrorist acts, well, I, I think your your freedoms under the First Amendment are are considered null and void. I think you should be uh, should be targeted. I'm sorry, you know, that's my belief. That's uh, it's a bit controversial, I'm sure, but that was my take regarding this research. So essentially. Uh, the DOD IG verified this later that one of our researchers, the researchers on the project hired by the army was targeting basically the comings and goings of individuals signing in and out of mosques. And, and that was global. So we were tracking mm -hmm. via this kind of the, their own, how they track each other, the Islam, the, the, uh, the way that they would, they, that we were monitoring them. Absolutely. And so that information was put into this overt database. And by the way, Adam, to this day, SOCOM will not give up, <laughs> he will not give up the overt database. Uh, and I've heard the lawyers continue to use this argument. Wow, we don't know if uh, we would consider that research as either research or collection. So that's kind of the broad justification they've given uh, lawyers I've spoken to of why they won't give up this overt information. And let me be clear. That information was completely overt. There was nothing obtained through classified methodology. Uh, nothing, mm. but, but to this day, they won't, they, won't let it, they won't let people look at the database. That's a huge clue for you guys too. Why, if, sure. it's, if, if, it's, if SOCOM has nothing to hide, why don't they just give up the database? It's been, what, 20 years? 
<laughs> what are you what are you worried about so uh anyway not to make too light of this but yeah we had we had this was an overt database but INSCOM, land information warfare activity had come up with some, some very sophisticated tools parentage uh was one of them uh there was a couple others which were data aggregation and amalgamation that they could basically go through and explore this stuff. And you mentioned two terabytes. Look, I've, I've got on a Dell computer before me, a two terabyte hard drive. Uh, back in those days, two terabytes was the size, the hard drives were the size of a bowling ball no, uh, plus. And so we, we were, and by the way, it would take six months to basically do an overt uh, uh, essentially downloading of internet information. What, what would took six months then would take two minutes now uh, to mm. do, uh, do the crunching. But we took all this data with very then unsophisticated tools compared to what's available now and, and downloaded, amalgamated, aggregated, and then used these advanced tools to basically look for, for patterns. And Adam, this is very simple. This is not complicated. You know, while people have a hard time wrapping their mind around it, it's not that complicated. Uh, Lewa, uh, Dr. Eileen Pricer and the Lewa folks took and digitized. They took they they built algorithms, which uh, were based on the the 83 World Trade Center bombers. They basically took uh, digital models of all those individuals who were involved in that, uh, and they they built an algorithm that that said, "Hey, uh, look for people who have these characteristics in all this data." Mm -hmm. So basically, you're 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 putting together a search program based on known profiles to go out and look for others. That's it. That's how we did it. Hmm. You, you, they went out looking in all this data for individuals who met that those profiles and then were linked together. That's what we did. And at the time, it, it was like, oh, it never been done before. Now it's done routinely. I mean, you know, hmm. uh, there's visual analytics, uh, analyst notebook. All these things do what we're talking about in real time. Back in the days when we were doing this, they didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But that's what it was, essentially, is you're taking and, and building profiles of known terrorists, taking uh, a, a terabytes of data and saying, algorithm, you go look for people who match this. And that's how we came up with the identification of those individuals you mentioned and identified the cells which were present in the United States. What well, became controversial beyond what I just described, because now that process is routine, uh, was the fact that first off, we found individuals who were here. These uh, individuals were found to be within the United States. And the, the DOD lawyers, that's the key, DOD lawyers using the Gorelick memo basically said, uh, first off, if they're, if they're here legally, you have to consider them US persons and you can't look at them which I thought was like, excuse me? Hmm. If they're linked to a terrorist organization, EO 12333 says we can look at it. Oh, we don't agree. Well, I disagree. You know, so hmm. we were, hmm. I was battling lawyers constantly over like, I don't agree with you. If they're linked to a terrorist organization, we should be looked at. And so, no, we were told, no, you. And so I, since this wasn't my data, this was SOCOM's data. SOCOM had to live with their rules. I didn't, I fought it constantly. Uh, but my, you know, DIA lawyers would fight me on it too. It was a constant struggle. 
And then secondly, uh, because they were here legally, uh, you, you can't look at them. You have to destroy the data. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, no, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> we don't mm -hmm. want to destroy right. the data. Mm -hmm. And this is where Army came into it because Army then said, look, you know, this is our data. We don't want it destroyed. So this was a shot. This was you, Adam, you wouldn't believe the amount of time I spent dealing with this nonsense. I bet. So we ended up briefing General Ellis, uh, the uh, des, des, des ops of the Army. We briefed uh, a number of leaders, uh, Bob Newman, General Newman, the desk end of the army, uh, because we were trying to save the data. General Sh Shinseki, Eric Shinseki got mm. involved as, chair, as, chair, as the, the chief of staff of the army. So in the end, uh, we lost. The data was directed to be destroyed. Mm. And we basically had to go to uh, Texas in the summer of 2000 to recreate it because the lawyers were so adamant about destroying all of this. Now, Adam, I don't think that it was ever destroyed. I've been told that it's still out there somewhere. But again, nobody wants to look at it because they know what they're going to find. Again, this goes back to, if you got nothing to hide, just let mm. people look at it and make their own assessment. This is what we said as the Able Danger Team from the beginning is like, just put it out there. Mm -hmm. Let people look at it. Make them, let them make their own decision on what they see. And uh, they won't do it. So uh, this is something that I continue to believe that Congress should call for and demand. Like, I don't care what political party you're in. Heck, Joe Biden himself was in the hearing, the, the first hearing on able danger in August of 2005. And he said, we need to get to the bottom of this. So what better than Joe Biden himself now yeah. to mm. call for, hey, release all the able danger information. I mean, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry I'm getting off track here. Oh. But, Going back to 99 and 2000, we had to, in 2000, uh, the lawyer said, destroy the data, uh, and then you can't share it. The Gorelick memo got in the way of sharing because I ended up trying to arrange the data to be passed to the FBI, to WFO, to the, to the bin Laden unit three separate times. Mm -hmm. And uh, all three times, DOD lawyers uh, stopped it, stopped the sharing of the data I just uh, told you about. Mm -hmm. And uh, to this day, uh, nobody can actually explain other than saying, well, the Gorelick memo provided us, prevented us from doing it as a reason why they wouldn't do it. And by the way, as you might know, Jamie Gorelick, yeah. the author of the Gorelick memo, was a member of the 9-11 Commission. Right. I believe she was mm -hmm. there to, to cover her own tracks rather than actually get to the bottom line, the, the, the truth of what happened. Mm. Now, just to add a little bit of follow-up to that, uh, yeah. it was later on in, during the uh, 2006 Senate Judiciary Committee, where you was, seem to be a little bit vindicated here, um, where William Dugan, who's a representative of the Department of Defense, actually was asked a question by our own inspector uh, regarding whether Alta was a U.S. person or not, and Dugan reluctantly agreed that he was. Right. So, yes, it was uh, actually um, well within your uh, personal interest to collect data from this individual who had an obvious uh, connection to known terrorists inside the cell itself. Right. Um, now, you already answered about whether that data was uh, shared outside of Able Danger. Could, could I ask, could that, could that information still be ascertained or is it classified? Well, <laughs> uh, Adam, I believe the data, uh, you know, this is part of the controversy about my disclosure. Um, I had a copy of a lot of the data in my own holdings in, in a DIA at Clarendon. Mm. Uh, 
DIA had a, an office in Clarendon, Virginia, right on top of the Metro. It's, it's, it's not mm -hmm. there now, but at the time, uh, one of my three operational locations was on the second floor of Clarendon. And uh, the Able Danger team would leave pieces of their a briefing because they were up all the time out of Tampa and they would come up and brief people over at the Pentagon. So, you know, I was kind of storing stuff for Phil Pot and others. And one of the one of the elements I was storing from is, is the summary of their data, the unclassified data. I had a copy of that. And so um, this has been one of the most controversial points because the IG says they couldn't find it. And I, mm. I would argue they didn't they couldn't find it because they didn't either it was taken before they got to my spaces or got to the material or they found it and won't talk about it. I, as a matter of fact, this is a good question for, for John Crane. I've never asked John directly about if they found it or not, but that's the point. Um, mm. I believe it's unclassified because the sources and methods that were used were essentially research and amalgamation of, of unclassified. Now, now, was there a classified database? Yes. The whole purpose of Able Danger was uh, in the data mining effort was to take the open source data and then put it into a classified system and compare it to the classified data to, to basically do it to confirm or refute the the uh, the data, basically create data sets which are validated. That's what we were seeking to do, and off those validated data sets, then you you can you put together your operational plans. You take the data, you analyze it, you validate it. The nodes which are created to show where your your terrorists are at, then you target. That's it. It's it's a it's a very uh, refined process. Very. Uh, very much elegant in its in its process. And by the way, the those target sets that were created as part of Able Danger, uh, Steve Cambone, the 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 uh, mm. senior intelligence guy for Don Rumsfeld, actually said in in, in, in op open hearings that the uh, the target packages created by Able Danger were the ones used by the Pentagon right after 9/11. So apparently we got it mm. right, but they don't want to acknowledge that. And but right. and this is one of those things too, Adam, that the the media was in the hearing. But they seem to gloss over Cambone saying this, and, and and you know, so but yes, so that that's that was the purpose of all of this this data is for purposes of of targeting. But going back to the question, I think it was very clear that uh, we were trying to establish these validated sets uh, of, of of basically making it all ultimately classified both by the fact you combine the unclassified with classified data for, for validation and vetting. And then that becomes part of larger targeting packages, which you don't disclose. You don't talk about who you're targeting, how you're targeting and all that. But the fundamental unclassified data is unclassified, was unclassified. And I do believe that should be released because I think, again, there's no better way than determining uh, if, if the if it showed what we says it showed or not that's what i find kind of compelling it's like gee you, you keep calling us all liars but you won't put the data out there that will prove your point and that right. kind of says something so yeah so I, I i think there are there are unclassified data sets that came out of the original project uh, i think they should be released i've always said this i've never changed that once you know it's it seemed that even after all the restrictions and the negative uh, thoughts about the program, what you guys went through in the unit. After the 9-11 attacks, it was yeah. Dr. Eileen Presser who called you for a meeting. And it was here that she showed you one of the Leewa charts from January 2000, which showed a picture so, yeah, it, it, of yeah. Muhammad Atta. How, and now, 
it's you were right. right all along. The program was right. It produced the data that showed that Atta himself and you guys were on the right track. How did how did it make you feel to know your program, which produced pertinent data, uh, was denied further operations by SOCOM and from every other agency? Well, I was pissed. I was instantly yeah. pissed, and then kind of sickened. It's like Jesus Christ. Well, I get this question a lot, Adam, and I got this. I got browbeat by the the, the Senate intelligence committee over this like well why didn't you recognize how important this was is because mm -hmm. because this wasn't the only black operation we were supporting you know back during uh, the 99 2000 time frame and i mentioned this earlier adam i i briefed schoolmaker on kind of everything we were doing and that's why i said wow based on everything you're doing we want you to do this too so you know did did we recognize that al-qaeda was bad before the attacks absolutely but they mm -hmm. weren't the only threat so after the fact, when Eileen came to me and showed me this, it's like, yeah, oh, my God, we were right. And it really pissed me off. And so uh, she she then took it upon herself to go Steve, see Stephen Hadley, the deputy national security advisor with Condoleezza Rice. And uh, boy, I'll never forget this because this was uh, in that right after 9-11 time frame and everybody was scambling trying to. By the way, we, we met. Uh, it was, I, I remember it later because it was like it was an Einstein's bagel bakery, uh, you know, uh -huh. shop that she laid mm -hmm. this all out on the table because, you know, they kept saying, well, there's Starbucks don't have a lot of room. It's like, yeah, they don't. it was. A, and I remember it's like this, this bagel place. We did it and she opened up the charts. So I was like, oh, my God. And I asked her what she was going to do. And she did. She took it to Stephen Hadley. And then I kind of let it go. It's like, OK, someone someone's working this because at the time, Adam, we were then preparing to go to war you know we'd already were launching into mm. afghanistan i ended up getting recalled to active duty uh i was pretty pissed i was going to basically sit the war out and be an admin officer i was going to accept recall to being a major and sit it out next thing you know i'm in command i mean if i did not seek command i was in charge of an operating base there's a whole that's part of a if you want to know about that it's in, it's in dark art i write mm. in great detail about how that all happened but i was going to sit out the war i was just disgusted after seeing how we were stopped by the bureaucracy from doing our jobs. So it's just kind of like, you know, I'm going to help out. I just don't, you know, I just don't want to be at the cutting edge. I'm just tired. I'm tired mm. of the bullshit. I'm sorry I use that language, but, you know, it's just oh. that up. So right after that, as I was getting ready to go on active duty one day, Eileen calls me and I've got my mobile phone. I'm, I'm on the Memorial Bridge running towards the Lincoln Memorial. And she says, you'll never guess where I'm at. And I said, no worries. She says she's at the National Security Council and she's briefing Stephen Hadley with a chart, turning mm. it over to him. And so, uh, and this was like, I think, uh, October of uh, 2001. So, Adam, I thought, hey, I'm done. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's with the right people. They're going to look at this now and it's all going to be, it's all going to be fixed. So, that's where I was. I could have never been more wrong. I had no idea that simply having her trying to do the right thing, we're trying to do the right thing, would be become such the controversy it ended up being eventually, uh, you know, that, that we now face. So, by the way, I, I see we're at an hour. We, we may want to set up a second session because this is a lot to digest. And I know that uh, I've got to get on to some other things here shortly. But oh, that's uh, all right. I have two questions. If I... Sure. Okay. We'll try to get to them. But I still would, I think we may want to get through some, you know, additional details on this too, if you want. Absolutely. Sure. Keep going. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, all right, fast forward to October 23rd, 2003, the day you say in your book, Change Your Life and Your Military Career. 
you are personally interviewed by 9-11 Commission Director Philip Zelikow and his yeah. staff. Yeah. Uh, take us through what happened on that day. So, yeah, I mean, bad. So, yeah, from uh, the, the time on the bridge from uh, October 2001 to October 2003, you know, two years have gone by. And now I'm deployed. I'd uh, been in command of operating base Alpha. We were chasing terrorists. I can't go into details. Everything we right, were doing right. again, mm -hmm. but we 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 launched uh, I, uh, one of the first covert operations right after 9/11. Uh, that's a whole other story. Uh, great op. Uh, it was a textbook in some ways, and others it was not, but it was good. Anyway, so after I step out of command, I'm now de deployed. I'm now the, uh, the uh, getting ready to become the the HSC, the human support element for Task Force 121 from a Crystals Task Force. This is kind of right before that. Uh, 121 was rolling into town. I was working for uh, my boss, uh, Colonel Negro in the book. He was a great guy working in leadership targeting. And so Zelikow shows up. And so, I, you know, it's in the book. I'll, I'll summarize it because people can go read it. Uh, when Zelikow shows up, uh, we're told uh, in the morning briefing, the 9-11 Commission is visiting if anybody has information they feel relevant to their investigation, step forward. You should go talk to them. Mm. So I raised my hand. I said, look, hey, uh, I, you know, I don't know if uh, this is relevant or not. They probably already heard of it. But we were doing something called Able Danger before 9-11. Uh, you know, uh, is it OK if I go talk to Zelikow? You know, I didn't know Zelikow. I just said, if I go talk mm. to him. And they said, yeah, sure. Uh, write up a one-page summary. And... Uh, and turn it in. As a matter of fact, I, I kept an unclassified version of that one-page summary that I gave to the to the uh, the congressional and IG investigators years ago. So they had it. And so uh, I wrote it up, turned it in, and sure enough, later that afternoon, uh, Zelikow and, and his staff were in there. And so um, again, I, I don't want to recreate the wheel because people can go out and read what I said. But right. I basically outlined that, yeah, we had this uh, pre-9-11 uh, operation, Able Danger. Uh, we, we were focused uh, on Al-Qaeda. We found, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, through our data mining, uh, we found uh, the, one of the high, you know, two of the three uh, cells to include Muhammad Atta. I talked to him about the problems we had with CIA because we had uh, an asset inside of uh, Afghanistan. We were planning to do some very sophisticated operations to penetrate Al Qaeda, and CIA ended up uh, killing that op, stealing the op. So I, I talked about that as well. Uh, I don't remember the national file number. We we track our sources by national file numbers, NFNs. So I mentioned the NFN. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but we mentioned that too. So I spent. I probably had about a half an hour, twenty minutes to half an hour with them. And it was like it, the, the, ro the room was silent. I mean, people were stunned. And it's like, I thought, and I basically, I said, I thought you, you know, you must have already heard about this. Mm. And they hadn't, they hadn't heard about it. So at the end of the session, uh, Zelikow comes up, gives me his card and says, uh, you know, and I was an alias. And so when he came up to me, I said, look, uh, you know, I'm here an alias. And I don't want to say my alias because they always get upset about it. It's out there. People want to find it. I said, oh, you know, when I will contact you in my real name, Tony Schaefer. Uh, and, uh, you know, he said, please do. Uh, what you said today is very important and we, we need to follow up. So I did. Uh, we end up, I end up following up in January when I'm back from deployment. 
and uh, the guy talks to you, says, yeah, we remember you. Uh, I'll call you back and set up a time for you to come in. And then two weeks go by and nothing. I call him back and it's like, yeah, we already found all the information on Able Danger. We don't need you to come in now. It's like, really? That's weird. And uh, that's how uh, I was kind of shoved aside by the 9-11 Commission. First, a great deal of interest. And then, yeah, we, we got everything we need. We don't need you to come in, which is really strange. Because I told him, I was like, I got, a whole, I got a whole set of documents on Able Danger that you're welcome to look at. I'll give them all to you. Because, you know, we, we did figure that there would be some controversy about this. So we kept a copy of, uh, of the documents just in case. So there was, there, there was a whole lot more, but I'm going to link the book to the bottom of the podcast. As sure. well. And my last question to you would be on August 14th of 2005, you get in contact with Kurt Weldon. Anonymously, yeah. anonymously at first. Well, um, and then no, you met, I think you met with him. No, uh, that, that's yeah, that's not, it wasn't it was never anonymous. Let me clarify that because I think there's some some disinformation out there. So the Navy, uh, I was attached. Scott Philpot comes back hmm. in late 2004 and starts working for an organization called Deep Blue. Deep Blue is the Navy's internal think tank. And um so Scott contacts me and says, hey, um, what are you doing as a reservist? Well, I'm not doing anything, so I'm, I've been suspended. <laughs> I was going through my mm -hmm. security clearance revocation process, which we could, nobody could figure out why I was being, you know, I was like, this is kind of over three minor, you know, allegations, which right. I, don't, I don't think, you know, we spoke about yesterday, I'll be happy to kind of go through briefly. Uh, DIA did an extensive two-year inspector general investigation mm -hmm. of me. Uh, regarding my time in command of operating base alpha and everything else where they, their allegation was i uh, i filed a, a false voucher going to command and general staff college at fort dix new jersey for 120 dollars like and by the way just for the audience to understand i went i could prove i went it wasn't right. like it was false and then when they when they figured out i could prove it it's like well you purposely co-mingled funds like I put it on a voucher and it was approved. It went through three. Anyway, so uh, the allegation I stole $120. That's mm. one of the allegations. Second allegation is I misused a cell phone. And Adam, you're going to love the amount. Uh, over a two-year period, I abused a cell phone to the grand amount of $76.76. Two years, right, two years. <laughs> 18 months of, of cell phone and they figured out that uh, yeah there was a we 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 chalked up $76 of bad fees to you right I mean I'll write you a check for God but that was that was fraud by the way that was fraud that's fraudulent and then the uh, the illegal or the improper award of the defense meritorious service medal for something called able danger it's <laughs> you can't make this up so it's like, no, here's the evidence. I worked on Able Danger. Here's the paperwork. And their, their allegation was, well, you somehow convinced General Dayton to award you the medal. It's like, Adam, to this day, I've never met General Dayton. I have no idea. I mean, I know who he is. I've never met the man. I've never met him, never spoken to him, not once. Yet somehow, magically, I convinced this man to award me the medal. So those three allegations were being used to permanently revoke my security clearance by Defense Intelligence Agency. During the same time, the Army 
was about to promote me to lieutenant colonel. So literally both organizations looked at the allegations, army dismissed them as saying, this is, this is, this is just stupid. And I was promoted to lieutenant colonel and the same allegations were used by DI to revoke my clearance. That's, that's how insane that time was. Anyway, so Scott Philpott didn't buy into the DI allegations. They put me back into play and I was working behind the scenes to help them recreate able danger. That's it. That's what I was doing with the Navy. And so during this time, spring of 2005, I was uh, uh, working at Home Depot part-time to make extra money, which was like I was bored because I was suspended. So I was working at Home Depot and working with the Navy on on recreating able danger as as an Army reservist. So next thing you know, in May of uh, 2005, I had orders. I was on orders, annual training orders, and assigned to the Pentagon to work with Navy. As a matter of fact, it says on my orders, place of assignment, U.S. Navy. (laughs) That's it. It didn't even say Hmm. The Navy's a pretty big place. So I guess they assumed I knew where I was going. (laughs) So so I ended up working for Navy. And um, during that period, uh, Scott Philpott was looking for funding. And so Scott had went over and met with Kurt Weldon hmm. uh, and asked Kurt Weldon at the time, Congressman Kurt Weldon was the vice chief of the uh, House Armed Services Committee. And he, you know, he met with Scott. Scott went over and briefed him on the new concept of what we wanted to do. And so it turned out, I didn't know this, nor, nor did I really care. Uh, you Navy officers can't just show up on Capitol Hill and ask for money. Who'd have thought, <laughs> you know, right, who'd right. have thought that there'd be restrictions on that? So Navy, Navy's congressional liaison got really upset with Scott and said, you can't go to Capitol Hill and ask for money. Don't ever do that again. So Scott, being the bright guy he is, looked over at me as a resource and said, well, you're an Army guy. You can go ask for us. Hmm. <laughs> so, so Scott... Scott says, go get a suit on and go to the Pentagon. It's like, okay. So he's a he's a he's an 06, he's a captain, mm-hmm. and I'm a lieutenant colonel, and I'm working for him. It's like, okay, I, I guess I can do this. So off I go. And I actually notify the army. It's like, hey, Navy's sending me over to Capitol Hill to ask for something. The army didn't care. It's like, yeah, if you're if they're asking it, sure, go ahead. What do we mm-hmm. care? So next thing you know, I'm in front of Kurt Weldon. And uh, this is this is May of uh, of 2005, and I, I outlined what the Navy wants and needs, and Kurt looks at me, Congressman Wall looks at me, says, well, you know, Tony, uh, this is all well and good. I, you know, I believe in this. You know, we funded Leewa's effort. It turned out he had funded the data mining technology Leewa had used back in 99-2000, and he said, whatever happened to that? Whatever happened to that project that uh, Eileen Pricer was doing? I said, oh, uh, you didn't, you don't know? He says, no, you know, we spent a lot of money whatever came of that. Hmm. So I said, well, let me tell you. So I laid out to Kurt Weldon, Congressman Weldon, the exact same information I'd given to Phil Zelikow uh, in October of 2003. And so at the end of the briefing, Kurt looks over at me and he has Russ Queso, his chief of staff in the room. He looks over at me and says, uh, well, why didn't you tell the 9-11 commission? I said, I did. And his face turned white and it's like and i looked over at russ it's like well yeah they never they didn't say anything about it i said well i've always i always thought there was a classified annex and kurt says no tony there's no classified annex it's like oh boy and i had a i just felt my the pit of my stomach drop it's like Mm. there's something 
something really wrong. Because we had spent all this time trying to tell people quietly because we didn't want to blow anything. We thought maybe that, you know, so, so uh, they, they instantly go to verify what I had to say. And I get it. It's like, yeah, go, 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 go figure out. So um, Russ Queso calls over to Chris Cogent. Chris is the uh, 9-11 project's uh, caretaker, whatever you want to call him, the 9-11 discourse project. And so Russ says, hey, Chris, uh, we got an officer, Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer, who says that he'd made a disclosure to you guys on something called Able Danger. Could you check on that? So I'm told to wait. I'm I'm hanging out there in Weldon's office. About 20 minutes goes by, and then now Russ Caso walks back in, and Russ looks like he'd been hit by a train. Russ Caso mm-hmm. is six foot five and a football player, and he looks like he'd somebody hit him over the head with a with a bat, and he's just looks like like he's shocked. And he and and Kurt looks over and says, "Well, what did they have to say?" And uh, Kurt uh, Russ looks at me and says, "Oh yeah, they know who who, who Tony Schaefer is." They verified you spoke to them. And Kerr says, and? And says, yeah, they verified that you brought up able danger to them. And it was a road they chose to not go down and look at. Mm. And so I'm shocked. Every, I think we all three were like, what? So that was the beginning of able danger, of the, of the whole controversy, the able danger controversy. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I wasn't there to make, I, I wasn't there as a whistleblower. I was there to ask for money for the Navy to quietly recreate the Able Danger program. I had no intention of being a whistleblower. I, you know, I was doing what uh, operational intelligence officers do. You try to try to gain information, gain the capacity to uh, collect the information and support operational forces in, in killing bad guys and doing good things. So that was it. That was why I was there with Kurt Walden. I was not, I was not there to dis- disclose as a whistleblower or anything other than to say, hey, this is what happened. So what, what, what you know, after, this will be the final, uh, I promise. What, yeah. what, after the Senate Judiciary Committee in 2006, yeah. wh- what, why, why was there no follow-up investigations? Why did the story just basically die after that? Well, we don't know. Uh, we honestly don't know. Um, Look, I, J- Joe Biden was in, uh, Senator Biden was in the original hearing with, uh, with Arlen Specter. Arlen Specter, Senator Specter, yeah. pushed on this and recognized the DOD. He accused rightfully the DOD of lying to him, and DOD got caught lying to him yeah. during the hearing. It's it was the most uh, amazing thing. Specter set him up, and they walked right into it, and and he caught him lying. Uh, and then we had the House Armed Services Committee, and we had. Um, uh, House uh, Government Affairs Committee, uh, Chris Shays. Chris Shays wrote an, a letter. Uh, I'll send you a copy. I got some other documents I want to send you to follow up. Wow. Chris Shays found that I was retaliated against for telling the truth. They found in their own inter- investigation that they validated what I had to say. So, yeah, it all, uh, and I, I was told during that time, Adam, that the reason it all went away is because neither side, neither the, the Democrats or the Republicans, could use what I was saying to gain any political advantage. As a matter of fact, both sides had almost equal responsibility. If you looked at the facts for the 9-11 failures, both political parties had a role. 
And I think that's what made it uh, very mm -hmm. unpopular. Nobody wanted to look at it because nobody could use it for advantage. Everybody had made mistakes and nobody wanted to take responsibility, so. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to most likely have you back on again. I'd love to. Um, and because uh, I had so many other questions. <laughs> I, I, I really did, but- um, Well, I'm Adam, to... uh, please hold them and let's do it again because yes, I appreciate yes. the opportunity to kind of let this all air out again after sure. all these years, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because um, I'd like to get more into that Senate Judiciary Committee itself. <clears throat> Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm at the bottom of the uh, uh, podcast, I'm going to link to your book, Operation Dark Heart, and to your website, the London Center for Policy Research, to let people know what you're doing at the current day. So, um, Yeah, and by the way, we're, we're currently doing an accountability project to help encourage whistleblowers. As a matter of fact, uh, oh. uh, one of the things we're trying to do is help people like me. It's like, you know, a lot of people out there don't necessarily want to become whistleblowers because, right. you know, they, they know the bad. I didn't know the bad consequences because I didn't pay attention. It's like, you know, at one point we could talk about Denny Hastert, Speaker Hastert, actually oh, yeah. asked, personally met with me and asked me to, to come forward. So it's kind of like, what are you going to do? I, I think it's a great place to begin next time, maybe, is kind of uh, how I ended up becoming a whistleblower over some of this stuff and what happened. Because we we do advocate for those who want to come forward and simply tell the truth. And it's not easy to do. Nobody nobody in this town seems to be happy with the truth, no matter what it is. So. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And the amount of, and also too, a unique case for you is that you didn't even uh, plan on being a whistleblower. No, no, no intentions, not at all. No. Anthony Schaefer, thank you very much for today's episode. Uh, Adam, thank you for having me. It's, it's great to talk about this. And I look forward to being on with you again soon. Sure.